And then uh, as you're doing that, um, just kind of like last week, uh, if you have your Bible, have it handy, but you're probably going to want to follow along on, up on the screens because we have some ground to cover and a number of different passages today. As we actually are coming to a conclusion of the series that we've been in for the last six weeks called Poisoned, we're talking about sin uh, and really not talking about sin in terms of like, oh no, we're talking about sin, but talking about sin in terms of understanding it and how it works in our life. And so we've, we've kind of touched on the concepts of kind of where does sin come from? What's the origin? And we knew that coming back from or going to the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, we know that sin and its origin was our attempt to become our own God. And then we know in our humanity, we figured out that's not going to work. So instead of just letting God be God, we decided to try to replace him with idols. But we know that the core of who we are and what we're looking for when it comes to sin is we're actually looking for satisfaction in our lives that we're looking in the wrong place and we can't find it. That's where we get off the rails. That's where we get off track. That's where we sin and miss what God's purpose for our life. So we've been walking through that. And one of the challenges as we come to the conclusion of this series is we've talked about Jesus' death and his resurrection. And that is the centerpiece of why we can have freedom from sin, which we're going to talk about today. But the challenge with that is that if you and I know that to be true, that Jesus paid for our sin on the cross and he rose from the dead because he was sinless, so he has power over sin and death, and we live in that because we follow him, that's great news. But when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'm still human. And when I'm being human, I still end up doing things I don't want to do. Anybody relate to that? And so we can have like these great moments of emotion and God, I forgive me and the brokenness inside and the transformation and then the daily grind kicks in. And you're like, okay, God, I, I feel like I'm back to where I was before. Because there, I think that you and I have to understand there, there's a rhythm of life that God gives to us that helps us to experience freedom when we wouldn't otherwise be free from sin. I know most of us would agree if, if, if we could do it our way, that when Jesus forgives us our sin, we turn our lives over from he just kind of waves his hands and our sin goes away and we're never tempted the rest of our life, right? So we can come to Jesus and Jesus can look us in the eye and say, just stop it. And we're like, got it move on, right? Don't you wish that it was that easy? But we know that it's not, and that's why there's a rhythm of life that God gives to us that's outlined in scripture of things that we can do that actually help us to establish healthy patterns in our life that allow us to experience freedom from sin on an ongoing basis. And it's, it's not, now as we're going to go through seven things, it's not seven steps, it's not seven keys, it's not seven ch checklist to-do lists. It's a rhythm of life that, what's a rhythm? A rhythm is something that is natural. It's like when there's a rhythm in music, you feel it, and it's, it's something that's normal and natural. It's something that you and I have to find our way into, into rhythm of the way God wants us to live our lives. So seven things I just want to touch on this morning, and these aren't somehow like sanctified things that I've come up with. They're things from the scriptures that seem to indicate things that help us to live out freedom from sin in our life. The first one is this. If we're going to establish this kind of rhythm of freedom in our life, we have to understand genuine humility. One of the biggest issues that we all have when it comes to sin is that we have pride. And pride is the defense mechanism that says, no, not me, I didn't do it, I don't think that's my problem, it's somebody else's problem, and comes up with every reason in the book why you don't have the issue that you know that you have. That's pride. And when pride enters the equation, then even though God is all-powerful and all-knowing, he also, when he works in us, he's not going to go blow past the roadblocks you set up to him. He only walks in into a heart that's open to him. And so when pride comes up and it, it deflects, then you and I start to impede the process of God bringing freedom to us from sin in our life because we won't actually acknowledge that we have issues. That's what pride does. It shields us from the reality of what we know to be true. And we don't want to admit that it's true. See, when you know that you have pride if you think you don't have pride. You have pride. 
And you know that you have pride when you're confronted with something that might not be right in your life, and immediately your first reaction is, no, not me. That's not me. I don't think that's true of me. How does humility respond when it's confronted with something that might be wrong with it? The first thing that humility says is, even if you can't see it, obviously you will say, you know, I can't see it or not right now, but you know what? That actually may be true of me, and I just haven't seen it yet. See, because humility is this receptivity to the fact that there's something wrong in me that needs to change, and I'm, I'm in a place where ultimately humility means I understand who God is and I understand who I am, and in understanding that, I know that God is the only one that's going to change anything in my life. And therefore, I have to be willing to drop my pride and acknowledge that God is God and I am not. Therefore, he has to do the transforming work in my life. But as long as that we're prideful, and pride, pride comes out of insecurity. We don't want people to know that we really have issues. We don't want them to know who we really are. We kind of have like the Wizard of Oz complex. We want to hang out behind the curtain, pull the levers, have the big fiery face and scare everybody. But all we are is this little old weak man behind a curtain. We, we don't want anybody to know. Why? Because pride tries to overcompensate for the brokenness inside of us. So establishing this sense of I understand who God is and I understand who I am. Therefore, I walk out humbly and and receive what God may say to me through his word, through people, through something in a circumstance in my life that something in me needs to change. Therefore, I acknowledge that I'm not perfect and God can do this work. Then there's a second part of this rhythm, and that is consistent confession. So not necessarily confession in a formal sense where you have to go and sit down with a pastor and confess your sins, although that may be something that you need to do. But confession is simply admitting what God already knows to be true about you. I, I don't know where we got this idea that if we hold back and we don't confess our sin, that somehow God will never know. He doesn't really know what's going on inside of my heart and my mind. He's pretty sharp, but he doesn't know. I can fool him. I don't know where we get this idea that God doesn't know what's going on. But he's patiently waiting for us to come to the moment where we actually confess with our mouth, with mouth is what's true with our life and says, finally, you admit what I've known all along about you. And you know what the wonderful thing about God is through the process of confession, we never shock God. He never goes, oh, I never knew that about you. And now I feel differently about you. No, he just waits patiently to, for you and I to acknowledge what he already knows to be true about us. This uh, confession is so powerful. Listen to the First John 1, 9. Very, very famous verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of us need to be cleansed from unrighteousness. How does that come? If I'm willing to admit something that God already knows to be true about me, that I'm broken, that I'm flawed, that I sin. And if I can just acknowledge that, this is what's crazy, that God comes along and says, listen, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cleanse you from what's wrong in your life. Listen to David's words in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. He says this of his own sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That, that weight that God puts on us to say, listen, you need to come out with what's inside of you. You know, what confession really is, is confession is a way to purge our souls from what's wrong with us. That's what confession is. It gets the garbage inside, outside, so that you can deal with it. And so it's just like, it's just like a physical infection. When there's an infection inside of you, you have to get the infection out of you in order to be healed from the infection. You can't just deal with it inside of you. 
And so what confession is, is confession, you know, I'll use this analogy, I know it could be kind of disgusting, but it's like if you have an infection in your arm or your leg, and you have a little red bump, and you go to bed one night, and you think, that's not that bad, it doesn't hurt that much, it's pretty small, and then you wake up the next day, and it's doubled in size. And you're like, well, it's a little bit bigger today, but I can manage this, and it's not that bad. And then you go to bed the next day, it's three times the size and four times the size. And now before, it's covering your tired arm or your tired leg. It's starting to really get hot. It's starting to look disgusting. What's the problem? You have an infection inside of you that has to get out. So you have to go to the doctor. What does the doctor have to do? Not only antibiotics, but they have to drain that. I know it's disgusting, but they have to drain what? The infection that's in you to get it out of you so that you can be healed. That's what confession is. We have all this infection inside of us, and God is saying, would you please just open the floodgates of confession and say what I know is to be true. Get it out so I can begin to do what? To cleanse you from all unrighteousness in your life. We have to be willing to confess our sin. And then there's a third thing, and you'll see none of these are easy, but they're things that will bring freedom to us in, in areas of sin in our life. The third thing is obedience, obedient repentance. In the church, repentance is a bad word because it usually means I have to do something I really don't want to do or it comes in the context of really bad news. So people say the gospel is good news and say, what's the gospel? You're going to go to hell unless you repent. Isn't that good news? And everyone goes, yeah, wonderful news. So repentance is something that we don't want to talk about. Why? Because it's something that means we have to do something different. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from the direction that we're going to the direction God wants us to go, turning away from our sin back to God. That's the simplest definition of what repentance is in our life. And that means when, when confession comes, the next step is, now because I've gotten it out, now I have to turn from the direction that I'm going, because if I keep going down that road, it's going to lead to death. It's going to lead to a dead end that I don't want to go down. And repentance is something that is, is laced throughout the scriptures. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verses 31, 32. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. To turn towards back towards God. He's calling them back. You and I can never reach the destination of health in our life unless we're willing to turn back from some of the areas of our life. Now hear me on this, because what I'm going to say in the next couple minutes, some people will take very legalistically, and that's not, I don't believe that's not God's intent, and that's what he wants, but... There are things in every one of our lives that we know we cannot get a handle on. And we know that we can't manage our sin. We know that we can't find freedom from the things that, that, uh, that ail us. And there are specific things that literally control us and bind us. And even would, we could use the word we're addicted to. And it's those areas of our life that I think what Jesus was talking about, if you go in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30, this is how serious Jesus takes the concept of repentance. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now Jesus is, is speaking, he's exaggerating, obviously. Is he literally saying, if you go out tomorrow and you steal something with your right hand, should you go home and then cut it off? No, he's not saying that. If you look at somebody or something and look in the wrong way, should you gouge your eye out? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, the cost to your soul is so great, whatever part of your life you cannot manage and you cannot control and you can't find freedom from, it might mean that you have to cut off yourself from it. That's hard. That means there are places that some of us should never go. 
There are relationships that at this moment in your life, you should walk away from. Doesn't mean you walk away from ever, but for right now, you have to walk away. Why? Because if you continue in that relationship, you're going to end, end up going down the road that you don't want to go down. There are experiences that you have that God is saying, listen, that's like your right hand. That's like your eye. You're going to need to cut that out of your life right now because it's going to cost you your soul. And so it's so important. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, you have to turn because you can't simply confess and just keep walking down the road that you're walking down because you're going the wrong direction. And if you and I understand that, that means that God is saying there is a way to find a rhythm of life that helps me to navigate the difficulties of my life, but it may be costly. It may mean that I have to give up something in order to find freedom from the thing that controls me. So as we continue to this, think about that, because it's, again, much like the infection that somehow confession brings health to. Repentance is the thing that you can't ignore, because if you keep ignoring it, you're going to end up in a place that you'll look at and think, how did I get here? How in the world did I, did I get here? Not realizing that all along that path, Jesus had planted U-turn signs all the way along there, and you just kept ignoring, ignoring, ignoring. It's like, anybody had appendicitis? They say that you have, like, between 24 and 40 hours when you start feeling severe pain to have your appendix removed normally, because if not, your appendix will burst, and if it bursts, bad things happen. Toxins get into your body, and it actually can lead to death if you don't deal with it. I haven't yet a per- met a person yet who starts to feel the abdominal pain and, and then they kind of try to play it off. Anybody ever have abdominal pain? You're like, no, it's not my appendix, right? And if you've be- had an appendectomy and you had that out, you're like starting to figure out it might be. And then when it becomes, you don't think, well, you know, I think I'm in really bad. Just take a little bit more pain medication. Just lay down, I'll be okay. It doesn't work that way because there's no going back. There's no reversing it. You have to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, what happens is the pain gets so intense, you might not be able to walk, but eventually, I've known people that literally their appendix is being removed, as it's being removed, it ruptures in the doctor's hands. They waited as long as they possibly could, and then somehow were saved by the doctor removing it just in time. I don't want to be that kind of person when it comes to sin. I don't want to end up down that road, and yes, Jesus can save us, and will save us up until the last moment, but I don't want to test that theory. I don't want to see how far I can push my appendix before it bursts and I die. I don't want to test how far I'll go down that road before Jesus says, listen, you really need to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye because this is going to cost you everything. It's not worth it. But we have to understand that. That's repentance, turning from the way we used to go. Then the fourth thing, the fourth rhythm of freedom in our life is transparent accountability. We, many of us, wish that, that Christianity was a one-person sport. You didn't have to play with a team. You had to be by yourself. You didn't have to deal with anybody else. It's always the way you relate just between you and God. Never have to connect or relate to other people. God did not set us up this way. He set us up to be healthy in relationship. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working confessing to one another, which means I am opening up myself to another human being and showing them who I really am. Is that relatively scary? Yeah, most of you don't even want to raise your hand. It's so scary, right? It is. That I'm actually going to open myself up to another person and risk the fact that they could injure me or they could misconstrue something or they could judge me for what I'm telling them about my life. But it's what God has created us to experience is that we have to be in community and relationship if we're going to actually be healthy and be free from sin. 
That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Iron has to have contact with iron in order for it to be sharpened. We have to have contact with each other in order for us to be free from sin. You can't do it by yourself. You can't fight a battle on your own and think that you're going to win it. You can't. You have to be in relationship with other people. In fact, I think one of the most untapped, forgotten rhythms of the early church that actually brings freedom from sin is this thing called community. And I'm not talking about community in terms of, hey, we had a potluck and we got together and ate dinner together. That's part of community, but that's not the depth of community that they experienced in the first church. Listen to what's described in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is important. How do you think that they navigated a world where not only did they have the enemy of their soul and the devil and sin and brokenness in them, but they had the Roman government breathing down their necks? How did they navigate that? They, they found hope and they found connection in each other to be able to move forward in what God had for them. The way the early church functioned in community is so different than what we experience today. And I think we forget about it because we think, oh, what did they do? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and breaking of bread and all these things. And, and there was miracles and all these things. And we focus on that, forgetting the fact they did this all in community. They did this in relationship. They let each other in. They were meeting in each other's homes. They were connected at that level. And I think that's why there was so much power in the early church is because there was nobody isolated. There was no one off on their own. They were in relationship. And so there wasn't the one lamb that got isolated that the enemy attacked because they were in community with each other. Now, I want you to think about we struggle with this. We struggle living in community. We don't struggle with what we'll call, and it's not even really the right definition. We call it fellowship, which koinonia, the biblical term, we don't even really tap into that. But we, oh, we fellowship, which means I say hi to people, I say goodbye to people, I know people's names, they know my name. I have fellowship. No, we really haven't. We've done a little social event, which really Sunday mornings is a social event. Don't think that you're in community if you come to Sunday morning church. You're not in community. You're in relationship, but you're not necessarily in community with people. Because we have a difficulty in letting people in. If we're willing to admit it, we struggle with letting people into our lives. Just think about the way that you relate to your house. I think I've shared this before. We have certain groups of friends and acquaintances and neighbors that kind of, even if you don't line this out, this is the way it works. You have certain people that you allow, you will open the door for, and, and they will be on your front porch, but you will not let them in the door. There's a group of people, you call them porch people, okay? They're good enough for you to open the door for, but somehow there's something about them that says you're going to say, I'm not letting you in my living room. And maybe it's the neighbor that comes over that you, you know, you maybe know their name or don't know their name. You wave to them because you don't want to be the rude neighbor, right? That person. And then you have another group and they're living room people. They're people that somehow passed your test and now you've allowed them into your living room, kind of your living space. You've maybe even had them over for dinner and you're hanging out with them. You have coffee with them and so that you have that circle. But then there's a whole nother level of people that maybe they actually get past the living room. They get to the bathroom because they, they have to while they're there if they're in the living room. But there's another room that goes even deeper that most of us never let anybody in. It's the bedroom. Most people, in fact, I talk to people between services like we had a rule in our house. Nobody goes in bedrooms. Why? Because bedrooms, that's the private place of our house, right? There's things that happen in the bedroom that we would dare not talk about on a Sunday morning service, right? Wow, this side's laughing. You guys are really nervous over here. It happens, okay? That's how we all got here, okay? 
But things happen in the bedroom that don't happen in any other part of the house. That's the, that's the most private place of our homes is our bedroom. And there is a small percentage of people that we just might let peek into our bedroom because our bedroom reveals who we really are. I'm convinced by looking at the earliest church that they all were bedroom friends. They let themselves that far into each other so that they revealed the garbage inside of them and they were real with each other and therefore they could find a rhythm of life that was free from sin. So many of us have yet to do that. We want to keep showing up on Sunday morning and shaking hands and hugging people and smiling and walking out the door and struggle all week long because we won't let anybody in. Here's a little plug, yeah, and I'm going to just let you know. You should be in a community group if you're a part of Antioch Church. There is no reason you should not be. We got one amen. That's really good. <laughs> We've talked about it over and over and over and over again. The rhythm of community starts in a community group, in building a relationship with people. And it's not just Bible study and a service project. It's being in deep community where people know my stuff and I know their stuff and they love me and I love them and we walk together side by side following Jesus into freedom. You can't do it by yourself. I'll get off my soapbox. Get in a community group. It's good for you, okay? All right, moving on. Wow, I didn't think community groups would be so quiet in here. <coughs> The fifth rhythm, the fifth part of this rhythm is regular rest. You probably wouldn't put this one in this rhythm, but we struggle with resting. In fact, most of us, even though you don't say it, you, we all think that, that keeping the Sabbath is an Old Testament law that we're no longer under. That was, ah, that's that in Exodus. That was under the law. That was, you know, Ten Commandments stuff. We're under grace, Right? Remember, Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is not, you know, ultimately it's made for man. It's not made for us to serve. It's supposed to serve us kind of mentality. So I don't have to worry about Sabbath. That was an Old Testament thing. Really? Jesus practiced that rhythm. Jesus found rhythms of rest in his life. This is probably more than anything else. We struggle with this because we think if we rest that we're insignificant. In our culture, what do we put a premium on? If I'm super busy, I'm really important. If my calendar is jammed, I feel like I'm alive and significant. If I have to slow down and stop, then I'm not significant. I'm not pointing anybody out in our church, but conversations happen like this every time. How are you doing? Oh, I'm just too busy. Well, whose fault is that? No, honestly, who held a gun to your head and said, you have to be busy? You choose to do what you want to do in life. You do. And being busy is something that we put on a pedestal. Why? Because I'm significant. No, we're not significant. In some regard, we actually could be sinful. Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. Listen, remember the Sabbath day keep, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. That covers everything. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all the room, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That still applies today. In a legalistic sense, like there's an actual 24-hour period that you better not do any work or God's going to send you to hell. No, not in that sense. But there's a rhythm of life that God established from the beginning. This goes back to the Garden of Eden, the way God did things at creation. Just think about the way that God created things. Adam and Eve, from what we can understand, were, were created on the sixth day. What's the seventh day? Sabbath. So wait a second. 
you're created on one day and the first day of your life is a day off. I like that rhythm. That's important to understand. Why didn't God create him on the first day and say, hey, work hard with me. Let's work for the next six days and then I'll finally give you a day off. No, he didn't do it that way. He created them with an automatic rhythm of rest built in. There's a pastor in Portland named A.J. Sabota. He spoke to a bunch of pastors last year at our annual convention about Sabbath, which is the greatest sin of pastors. Because we have to be busy, otherwise we're irrelevant. Seriously, that's the feeling. Like, I gotta have stuff to do. I'm really important. If I don't have anything to do, then I'm not important. It's a lie that we buy into. And he talked about some things that are really interesting. He said that we don't rest so that we can work. We work so that we can rest. See, you and I think if I take a day off, I'm just building up my energy again so I can go out and work. No, I'm working all day, all week long. Why? Because the, the goal of my life will be rest. What do you think ultimately is going to be the presence of God? It's going to be shalom. It's going to be peace with God. Rest in our souls, which, by the way, is not boring. It won't be boring. I can guarantee it. But that's what God wants us to understand is actually having a day where we are with him. Just think about that. What if you were actually to shut down once a week and not do anything? Some of you are twitching when I say that. What if you shut your phone off for an hour? Start with that. Because some of us, man, are you kidding me? What if you shut your, your phone off for like six hours, seven hours one day? Didn't check it. Shut your computer. Didn't check your email. Didn't do anything like that. Social media. Whoa. Now don't go there, Pastor John. What if you didn't check Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever other media source you're looking at? What if you just stayed clear of that and just said, I'm going to just be at peace with God? And you found rest in your soul. This is so important. It's so important. If you and I can find that rhythm of rest in our life, then why is this important for us in terms of sin? Because when you're worn down and you're moving too fast, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. You are vulnerable emotionally, physically, and spiritually. If you are worn down and you're, that's why God created this. This in, this rhythm for us is to be at rest. So if you establish that in your life, don't let anybody put shame on you for actually honoring the Sabbath in a way that gives you a break. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And don't feel that your life has to be so full so you feel, feel significant. Significance is never found in busyness. Exhaustion is found in busyness. Why don't you do a few things that God's called you to than a million things that he hasn't and see how significant your life can be. Two more things. The other rhythm of freedom is intimate connection. Have an intimate connection with the God of the universe through Jesus. This is, a, this is something that Jesus practiced with the Father when he was on this planet. He st spent extended times with him and he and the Father alone by themselves. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 35 and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He talked to the Father. Now, we're not privy to all the conversation that Jesus had with the Father, but we do know the evidence of it, where he can stand before people and he can say, the Father and I are one. What you see me doing is the will of the Father. I'm only doing what the Father... Where did, where did Jesus get all that instruction? In times of isolation, apart with God, intimately connected with the Father, so he could stand before people and be who he was on this planet. Jesus did that. He calls us to this. He calls us to intimate connections. Some of us, although we know Jesus, we have yet to have an intimate connection with him. We don't really know him well. We know of him. We study him. We read about him in the Bible, but we don't know him. And that's important because 
It's not that Jesus is looking for us to have a really robust devotional life. Because that's what the answer is. Okay, connection with Jesus. Get a Bible reading plan. I have my prayer list. And I make sure I do it once a day. And if I don't do it, I feel really guilty. Anybody relate? Because then you're like, if I didn't, I didn't connect with God today because I didn't read my three chapters and pray for the 10 people on my list. Oh, God, forgive me. We feel horrible. You can do that. You can read three chapters a day and pray for 10 people and still not connect with Jesus. Devotions are a part of it, but I know I've seen in my life, devotions are not good enough for intimate connection with God. They're not. There has to be something more in my life that gives me space to truly connect on a deeper level that's apart from a daily rhythm of reading the Bible and praying, which I do. But there has to be more. When Jesus went away to desolate places, he wasn't doing his devotion. He didn't break out his life journal and go through soap with the Father. He didn't do it. Not to mock that, okay? It's all right. But that's not what he was doing. He was in deep communion with God. We know that. The evidence part of that is, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus says to the Father, he knows the will of the Father, but in tears, literally bleeding like as, as though drops of blood, like tears, says to the Father, before he goes to the cross and takes on crucifixion and the wrath of God and the judgment, our judgment on himself, says, if there's any other way, but then he says this, not my will, but your will be done. How could he say that? Because he knew the Father. And knew the Father's heart for him, and he knew the Father's heart for the world, so he knew him so deeply, intimately, that he could say, I will go to the cross. I will take this on. That's what God wants for us. What does it look like for your life? For me and for our staff, I've mentioned this before, our staff gets one day off every quarter with pay to go be with Jesus. Not to do work they didn't catch up with Don during the week, not to add to their vacation, but just go away, do no work, just be with Jesus. For some, it's they go for a hike. For others, they go drive around different places that spark things about go what God's saying to them. For others, for me, I, there is a beach in Oxnard that is my connection with God. I love that beach because I go there and I'll take a day with no agenda and I'll just show up and the only thing I have is access to the scriptures and some worship music and that's it. And I just walk and say, okay, God, what do you want to say to me today? What do you want me to hear how do you want, sometimes he doesn't want, he's not giving me any tasks to do. I don't walk away with a to-do list. He's just wanting me to be with him. And every single time I go, guess what? He speaks. And I've joked before, but Kim loves when I go on those days because I come back different. I'm in a better mood. I'm a nicer person. Why? Because I've had an intimate connect connection with the God of the universe. And then I find ways in my life to experience freedom from sin. Why? Because I know what God wants for me, and I know his heart for me, and I know him deeply, and I know he walks with me. And then there's a final thing. The final rhythm is this. Spirit empowerment. Being filled and baptized and immersed in God's spirit in our life leads to a life that finds rhythms that are different than the rhythms of sin in our life. A reminder of what Paul said. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 7. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is so great. Because what do you and I do when it comes to sin? What do we do? We focus on the sin. All right, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Oops, I did it. Right? That's sin. And when we're hyper-focused on sin, guess what we're going to do? Sin. So Paul comes along and says, don't focus on gratifying that. He says, walk in the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. A different rhythm of life than walking in our flesh. He says, don't worry about if you're walking in the flesh, but if you walk in the rhythm of the Spirit, which means understanding the Spirit of God lives in you, 
He wants to empower you and fill you and transform you that at every moment of every day, God's spirit, if you said yes to Jesus, dwells in you and he's present at the moment of your decision about sin or not to sin. He's always there. You know, Paul said it. He said that when we are tempted, there is always a way of escape. There isn't, an, uh, there isn't a time when we face a temptation that every option's a dead end. That, is never, that never occurs to humanity. There's always a way of escape. And guess who knows the way of escape? The Holy Spirit inside you. He does. He is the most precise, accurate guidance system known to humanity. And he's embedded inside of us. And if you're like me, I, if I were to think back over every moment where I made the wrong decision, where I sinned and when I failed, there was always a moment just prior to that failure where something inside of me said, you shouldn't do this. And then I just ran right through that barrier and did it anyway. Anybody relate that's happened to you? What is that? It's not a what, it's a he. It's the Holy Spirit inside of us saying, listen, I will guide you into truth in your life. Jesus being the ultimate truth. I will convict you of sin. To know this is the right way, this is the wrong way. And when we experience that depth of empowerment, then we realize that God gives us the ability to make the right decision. It isn't though it was a gray area. It isn't though I wasn't quite sure. Usually, not always, but usually we know the right way to go. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit just keeps coming along, keeps us on the path, keeps us on the path. Sometimes we want to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We just want to do it our way. When we were in a building program in Ventura in the church that we planted, we, we were, w- the building program we were in took us 18 months. It should have taken us six but in the process of doing a building program, uh, much like we did here, anytime you deal with a city, it always takes longer. And so when we got into the building, we were in Ventura, and we were going through the process. You had to jump through all the hoops. You had to get your conditional use permit like we did here to approve the city's approval and the community's approval to use the building for what you're going to use it for. And so you had to jump through the hoops. And so that took us like six months. And then the, the build-out took us another year. And I remember Kim can say, I was like pulling my hair out like, is this ever going to end? And then meanwhile, at the same time, I had a really good friend in town, and they, he planted a church, and they found a building. And so I'm like, wow, we're like in this together. We're going like, to get together and gripe about the city and how horrible they are. Because, and he goes, and so he, he goes in, and he goes, well, we're doing a little different than you. I'm like, well, how are you doing? And he goes, well, we're not telling the city. And I'm like, you're not? He's like, dude, you're going to get in trouble. He goes, nah. He goes, they won't know. Took him three months to get in his building. Oh, just being honest with you. I remember sitting in their grand opening and thinking, this is great for them, but I still got a year ahead of me. I know this process. And so after that, I'm thinking, well, forget it. If he doesn't have to abide by the rules, then why do I have to abide by the rules? He's getting away with it, so why can't we get away with it? I started thinking through, I don't have to tell a city about that. We adjust the plans there. I don't have to pull a permit for that. I mean, he's getting away with it. And every single time, the Holy Spirit would come along and go, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're not him. You're you. And I'm telling you, this is the right way to go. Don't get off the path. Just stick with it. Just stick with it. And so I did. And 18 months afterwards, we finally got into the building. Fast forward a few years. Our building was up to code. I didn't care if anybody from the city came. Everything was up to code. Everything was what it was supposed to be. Not so much for my friend's building. In fact, through some circumstances, somebody from the city just happened by into the building and said, whoa, a church is meeting here? you guys can't meet here and shut them down like that because nothing they did was permitted nothing was run by the city and that significantly impacted that church's ability to continue on as a church and now 
I didn't look back and go, oh, serves you right. I just said, thank you, Lord, for continually coming along and saying, this is the way to go. Because I guarantee the Holy Spirit was at work in my friend, too. He just found a better way to turn up the volume and the noise in his life and not listen. It may not be a building program for you, but there's things in your life that you constantly are hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you. He's working in you. You just have to listen to what he's saying. Because normally, like God says, he comes as what? A still small voice. He doesn't come with banners and balloons and a big blimp and skywriting. He just says, listen, this is the right way to go. Through his spirit, he said it. So as we conclude today, the worship team's back. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and and join me. Because as we come to the end of this series, there's a tendency for us to walk away feeling, okay, all right, we just talked about sin. Now I have to go and work the checklist of seven things that Pastor John gave me, and then I'm going to find freedom from sin. No, that's not going to work that way. Because at the core of what we've talked about over the last six weeks, is although we've talked about sin, one of the things that you might have noticed through this series is we didn't target in one, any one particular sin, did we? We didn't talk about this sin or that sin. Because this isn't about individual sins. This is about sin overall and the answer to our sin, which is found in who? Jesus. And so the only hope that you and I have moving forward right now is in Jesus and what he's done for us and his death and his resurrection, which means we have hope. And I want you just to think about this. In fact, just close your eyes just to think about something that gives us the perspective of what God has done for this moment to bring us to a place to deal with our sin issue. At the beginning of time, God knew when he created us that we would have a sin issue. He knew it. Because as human history has unfolded, Jesus was never God's plan B. He was always plan A. So from the beginning of time, God had put in motion that he knew that when he created human beings that we would turn our back on him, we would try to become him, we would replace him, we would do all these things, but he still knew he would love us, and therefore he put in motion even back at the place of the garden where the serpent tempted Eve and she ate the fruit and Adam ate the fruit and they fell, and in that falling, God told them, God said that there eventually will be a savior that will crush the head of Satan. And as time unfolded, Jesus was that Messiah. Jesus was the one that would crush Satan and defeat death and defeat sin so that we could find freedom. He put that all in motion, all why, for today, not just for thousands of years, for today, because he knew there'd be a group of people in Simi Valley, California, gathering at Antioch Church that have a sin issue that he can bring freedom from. But not only did Jesus, Jesus do the big thing of he came and he died on the cross and he said, my righteousness in exchange for your sin. And then he rose from the dead to guarantee if we follow him that we will live forever with him in his presence like we were created to live. But then he said, in this life, I will give you a rhythm of life that although you are human and although you will be tempted and although you may fall, you can get up and you can find freedom and you can find forgiveness and you can have a future even though you failed. God did all of that for us for one reason. He loves us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be reconciled back to us. That's how much He loves us. And so this morning, we're going to conclude with a couple songs. And the first one, it may be familiar, but just listen to the lyrics of the song about God's grace, His restoring power in us, what He's done for us. Not about the sin, 
but about the forgiveness and the grace that he brings to bear in our life. Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, would you now seal, not put a period, but Lord, you know, we put a comma at the end of the series because tomorrow morning we wake up and we're human. And we're going to have to navigate what freedom looks like in our lives. Would you give us in these moments by your spirit the power to experience, Lord, the truth, the grace, the mercy, the restoration, the redemption, the reconciliation back to you by the presence of your spirit in our lives as we work with you with our hearts, our minds, our mouths, everything, Lord. We give you in these moments. In Jesus' name.